0: Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. That's right, that is the last chapter in the book of Exodus. We have two studies left. And I trust that in this study, if you're new to us, we have been working through this book chapter by chapter mostly, except in those places where it is repeated, but chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And I pray that we have never visited a chapter or verse in this book without your hearing Christ described and or prescribed as the one who is the motivation and the enablement, and the power for everything that we are called to do. And uh, maybe by now you have seen that this really follows uh, the pattern or really is prescriptive and anticipatory of the, of the pattern of Christ's life. Think about it. After 400 years of slavery, of bondage, God stooped down. He sent uh, His servant Moses by means of a little boat into the palace of, of uh, the Pharaoh, and there, from there He took him out into the wilderness. He brought him back into Egypt, into the house of bondage to lead His people out. And God, with a powerful outstretched arm, led His people out, also making way for them, protecting them under the blood of a lamb. Took them into the wilderness, took them to Mount Sinai. They received laws intended for their flourishing so that life would go well with them. And and Moses did not leave them until a way had been provided by means of the tabernacle to convince them that God was with them, would never leave them or forsake them. Now think about Jesus' life. After 400 years of of silence from the prophets, God stooped down. He sent His Son from His palace into our house of bondage, into our place of slavery. He taught us the kingdom. He died as God's last lamb in our place that we might be Liberated from our sin. He gave us God's law that life would go well with us. And even after he ascended, having risen from the dead, even after he ascended, he did not leave us without assurance of his presence. But even now, he has sent his Holy Spirit to us, and especially within the local church. And so our Text begins in verse one of chapter 40, to lead us once again to God's grace, His presence with us. We begin reading verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, "On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting, the altar, and put water in it. you shall set up the court all around, hang up the screen for the gate of the court Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments. You shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as a priest. You shall bring his sons also, put coats on them, anoint them as you anointed their father, and that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases, set up its frames, put in its poles, and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it. And as the Lord had commanded, he took the testimony and put it into the ark, put the poles on the ark, set the mercy seat above On the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle, set up the veil of the screen, screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And offered on it the burnt offering, the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting, the altar, and He put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And when they went into the tent of meeting, when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. but The Word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, open our eyes that we might see Christ, Christ near to us, not only in this passage, but in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. Do you know the name Dorothy Gale? Probably not. But you remember her dog named Toto. And uh, you remember the cyclone hit her farm in Kansas and knocked her out. And then when she woke up, she awoke in a very strange country. It wasn't Kansas anymore. And she was put onto a road that was supposed to lead her back to Kansas. She met some strange people, straw man, a man... A tin man, a, a lion that didn't have courage, all kinds of scary things in between, and, and at each time, each challenge, she, she said, I, "I really, I really wish I were home." It was those words, words like it, that took her back. She clicked her heels and said, "There's no place like home. There's no place." Like home. There's no place like home. And then the technicolor fades back into sepia. And you see in the old movie, Dorothy on her sickbed, surrounded by Uncle Hank and Auntie M and, and Zeke and whoever else was there, strangely resemble the other characters. There's no place like home. She kept saying, They said, You are home. No place like home. Her senses came back to her. Uh, Things were put right again in the world. She was secure. Her favorite people were around her, and she was in a place where she knew she belonged. God designed the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament to function in a very similar way for the people of God. He crafted the tabernacle and and, and put it right in the middle of their encampment. He eventually crafted the temple, put it in the middle of their country, in the middle of the world, really, the crossroads, north, south, east, west, in the Middle East. He put the temple, and then he told Solomon to teach his people as they learned to pray about the temple. He said, no matter where you are, he taught the faithful Jew, no matter where you are. Even if you can't make it back to this temple, turn in your mind's eye, with your body, turn toward this temple and remember that I am with you. He, He didn't delude his people into thinking that he could live in a place made by hands, but he gave them this tactile sign very graciously as a kind of sacrament to say, look at this place. Feel it. Touch it. In your minds, I go to it. And as long as you can, you will remember that I am with you. The local church functions in the same way. It's not that God has done away with that principle. It's not that God says, now you've grown up and you don't need these kinds of sensible uh, signs any longer. No, it's instead that God has come even closer to us. That he's multiplied the temple or tabernacle principle, and He has moved even closer to us with little temples, little outposts of heaven called the local church, so that the tactile uh, testimony of His presence with you is always just that near. God is a God of physicality, God is a God of beauty, and because He is, that, that means we have a stewardship responsibility for this outpost of heaven He has given to us. We've been talking about stewardship this, this month, the stewardship of our calling, the stewardship of our money, and now the stewardship of God's house itself, this mission center by which we are reconnected in a tangible way, to the reality of God's presence. And from this, we move with confidence and beauty into the world around us. Think about the physicality of God's God's ways as it's communicated to us in, in this tabernacle. God said in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, I want you to build a tabernacle that I may dwell there. Now, the Jew didn't have any confusion about what God was saying. It's not that God said, I'm, you know, I'm homeless until you build me this tabernacle, but rather God said, I am with you, but I want you to build this tabernacle so that you know visibly with your senses that I am dwelling in your midst. Up until a couple of generations ago, maybe even one generation ago, we had this this. This impulse among us as the people of God to craft places, distinct places for worship. Even though you don't see a church building built in the book of Acts, you do see even in the first, quickly after the close of the book of Acts, that even while people were meeting in caves, they decorated those caves. And when they had opportunity and freedom, they began to build those buildings, and the impulse was, has, been, has been followed throughout, uh, throughout church history that when a people move into a place, when they settle a new area, they remain in their temporary housing, in their, in their wagons, in their tents, in their lean-tos. They, remain in those, they remained in those temporary dwellings until they had built a church in the middle of their settlement. And they built it to be the, the tallest, and they, and they outfitted it with, with accoutrements and, and appointments that were, that were made with materials that they didn't even find in their own homes. They gave it their best. And then later they built their houses. But as recently as a generation ago, we began to see that phenomenon flipped, in America anyway. Anyway where homes become larger and larger, more elaborate, and churches become an afterthought. They're built more and more, are fashioned into, into buildings that look temporary or look disposable or are outfitted with, with leftovers from our homes. Now, I'm, I do not want to be critical of any particular church building. I've, I've had to make do with very little. And church planters don't have much choice. They have to occupy a temporary facility or or, or something that doesn't exactly feel like church, but they do their best to craft it into a place that reminds them of worship. I also want to be careful to communicate if you're new to us that I can't take personal pride for this building any more than anybody else here can, because we didn't build it. Our forefathers built this, And now they have given it to us. They've entrusted it to us. It's something we never could replicate, this incredible facility that spans the block, this sanctuary in the middle of it. A a building that is used virtually 24-7 throughout the week, we use this this thing to death. If I weren't in the pulpit, I'd say, we use the heck out of this building. We put it to use. We have 10,000 setups per year. All our ministry partners use it. It is a blessing that we have been that we have been given. And when you become a member, it becomes yours. And you share it with your friends and you, you experience God's presence in it. This is, this is a gift to us. But we've tended to forget that in the church. That that God, that that impulse of of building something centrally located in our lives that is bigger than we are, that, 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 that reminds us that God has met us on earth. Now, when you experience the Lord, you can experience the Lord anywhere, of course. But He has especially given us the local church and its worship as those places where we could schedule times when God is going to meet us in a way that we cannot objectively describe. When the Bible says that that He has made His manifold wisdom known through the church, God's people have never been able to think outside of, well, that church that I gather with when he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but all the more, as you see the day drawing near, they were to think of gathering themselves together in the church for encouragement. When the psalmist said, "I I have in the sanctuary seen the majesty and power of the Lord, he's not talking about in his mind's eye. He means when he went to church. God uses these physical places to connect with us. I call them Ebenezer moments. After 1 Samuel 7, when, uh, when Samuel uh, led the people of God and, and, uh, and God delivered them from the Philistines in a miraculous way, and so he, he built up some stones, he built up a monument, he called it an Ebenezer, a stone of help, a rock of help. And he put it there in that place. And, and every time the people thought, well, I, I don't know if God can help. I need, desperately need God to help me. I don't know if I can go forward. I don't know if he'll ever deliver me from another enemy. He would go back to that place. And they could grab it. They could hold it. They could touch it. They could see it. And in a tactile way, an environmentally nurturing way, they said, God has done it before. He will do it again here is a sacramental sign that God is my help. You, you know those moments if you've been in church for any length of time you think I I remember God's promises made to my children at that baptismal font. Well God God met me when I took my vows with my with my spouse on that platform. I remember being in church the the, the Sunday after I was diagnosed with, with cancer, I remember being in church and praising him the, the Sunday after I was declared cancer-free. I, I remember kneeling there in that sanctuary and confessing my sin and hearing the pastor say, someone said this to me not long ago, hearing the pastor say, your sins are forgiven, and they said, I, I knew in my heart that my sins were forgiven, but I somehow felt it was true. Ebenezer moments when the Lord meets you in a way that you can't put words to. He's given you a place in which to experience it. One of my favorite uh, Ebenezer testimonies is made by a young woman who grew up in the church I used to pastor. She was a young woman who grew up under... Todd Erickson's youth ministry there in Augusta. Her parents had left our church before I got there because of a church split. They left over what they said was a gospel issue, later they would, they would confess that it wasn't. They just left. The mother, a number of years later, took her life. And uh, her family traveled back in. They didn't see it coming. They weren't expecting her to fall to such a state of depression that she would become suicidal. But she did, a great tragedy, an unspeakable tragedy. And her daughter, who lived a couple of thousand miles away, had to make her way back uh, for the arrangements and to be of comfort to her siblings and her dad. And and after such a long journey, many hours of of flying, you would think that once she landed, she would go straight to her house and hug her daddy and, and be with her, her siblings, but she didn't. She took a detour. She went back to her church, she said. The doors were locked. It was in the middle of the night. It was a moonlit night. She went up the stairs where her parents would have carried her for her baptism, she walked over to the Sunday school building where she heard the gospel for the first time as a little girl. She she went to the grassy area that the youth were sometimes on, where she where she laughed and cried with their youth leaders, where she prayed to receive Christ, and she sat down at the in the courtyard near that place on a bench. All the ugliness of her life, the tumult and the the tragedy, the heartbreak of her life, she, in that minute she was surrounded by the beauty of that garden, beautiful blooming flowers in the spring, she looked at the statue to one of the beloved pastors of that, of that place. There he is in the act of preaching, and beneath the statue it reads, Remember the words I spake to you. She remembered the words. She remembered that uh, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, that He will complete the good work that He began. He knows the plans He has for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. When you walk through the fire, I will be with you. Death is swallowed up in victory. She made a pilgrimage around that church church property and visited the places where she had Ebenezer moments, and there was yet another. In the weeks to following, all of her family made their way back into fellowship with the church, and there was yet another Ebenezer moment of having been away in the wilderness and God bringing them back and bringing a family around them, the old family, back around them to walk with them through their tragedy. God is a God of physicality, you know. He's a God of place. We are people of places, and so God makes Himself available. He stoops down to places to touch us, and He doesn't do it in a a barely essential way. He doesn't do it in a Spartan way. He does it extravagantly and beautifully. That's what we see in the the outfitting of this tent, this tabernacle. We've, We've read about the the fine materials used nothing but the best in order to convey a suitable give a suitable impression of the surpassing glory of god this is the this is god inventing glamping this is glamorous camping this is no ordinary tent this is a beautiful tent that comes right down into the middle of israel's village and it reminds them that God is beautiful, that His redemption is beautiful, and He will not finish working with them until He's made them beautiful too. God comes beautifully into our midst, and He has a strategy for doing so. He wants to shape us. Winston Churchill said famously, we, we shape our buildings and then our buildings shape us. What kind of buildings are shaping us? We we want this building. We we, we rejoice in this building that that God uses to shape us. Architects, academic architects throughout throughout the centuries have noted six characteristics of sacred architecture. Verticality, light and shadow, craft, geometry, artistic unity, and hierarchy. Just think about them in this in this building, verticality. When you come into this place, you can't help but look up. It it, it makes you feel small. And then light is light. They're shadows that remind us of the light of Christ and the mystery of God's presence. Materials used to build this building are are stunning, aren't they? They're, they are. Artistry is obvious, and everywhere we look, something may, it means something. There, there's the, there's the signs of the covenant, the, the tracing of God's grace all the way from the from the beginning to the end. The apostles and the Word of God represented around us. There's the there's the geometry itself, or the the architecture itself, is to remind us of what the. Ancients used to call the axis mundi, the, the joining of heaven to earth. We see it even in the aisle of this church. We call that part that goes across back there called the, the transverse aisle. But it's a cruciform shape. It's, a, it's as if God has taken the cross and He's put it right down in the middle of this building. And then hierarchy, the hierarchy of the furniture. The, the pulpit is the highest place here, not because the pasture is the most important, but because the Word of God is most important. And here it is that God joins and meets us, brings heaven to earth by means of God's Word. God is a God of beauty. He desires to shape us into those beautiful people even by surrounding us in our place of worship. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect its presence. Don't neglect attending it. I don't mean to make those of you still at home to make you feel bad. You're, you're taking uh, prudent measures that you are, are called to make. But uh, I, I, I do want to remind us that, that the reason that we have good reason to long for and agonize over the fact that we cannot join together because we're made for this. When you, are, when you are lonely, go to church. When you're forlorn and you don't know which way to go and you don't know, and life is completely chaotic, even if it's in the middle of the night and the doors are locked, come to the front of this church and look up To the steeple, it'll force you to lift your eyes to heaven and see the cross at the top. When you're confused and worried, go to church. When you're happy and want to praise God and your one voice is not enough, then go to church. It's not that it's magical to go to church. It's not that you get extra points for going to church. But it is that God has crafted this place lovingly for you, to craft you lovingly into the image of Christ. It's worth making a slight tangent into art and beauty here while we're on the subject and to remind you that how many times in this past weekend have we said, isn't this beautiful? Isn't the weather beautiful? Where do we even get the concept of beauty? But from God. God. Who is the source of all beauty? So said Jonathan Edwards and Samuel Mather, the Puritans, and Abraham Kuyper. God is the... We only know beauty because of the one whose being is beautiful revealing it to us. At the same time, we're, we're realistic. Francis Schaeffer, the famous evangelist and thinker from Bri Switzerland, who was a pastor in St. Louis, he reminded people that that we all have a, a a privileged responsibility. Artists, especially, but all of us have a a kind of artistic calling of bringing to bear on this earth the the minor and the major theme, calling attention to the minor and major theme. He called the minor the minor theme. He said is the is the theme of the fall, sin and rebellion and wickedness and and hatred and. And, uh, and injustice, all of these are marks of... of uh, these are the minor theme. This is the fallenness of the world. It's been brought by sin. But that's the... The minor theme is not the major theme. The major theme is God's redemption. That God has not left us in this brokenness, but He has sent Christ to bring the good news. And so in, in every action we take if you're an artist if you're an author or in whatever your occupation is whatever your calling is there is an opportunity to give testimony both to the minor theme yes i acknowledge that it is appropriate to lament it is appropriate to grieve it is appropriate to acknowledge the injustice of the world but it is also appropriate to ring the changes on the major theme that christ has not left us hopeless and helpless He's brought Christ into the world, and He's using us to bring that redemption into the world. Give testimony to a God who's not just saving in the church, but He is, He will not finish ruling and reigning until He has brought all things into conformity to His purposes, us individually, as well as the creation itself, and it'll finally be set free from bondage to decay, and it's groaning we agonize in this, in this period. We are full of disappointment where, yes, but this is not all there is. This evening we'll especially give thanks and praise, counterintuitively. In this place, to testify that God is saving. Thomas Merton, a kind of modern-day monastic, came to Christ... As a, as, a, as a young man, and he'd grown up in an atheist home. His father was an artist. His mother died prematurely. His dad took them on a worldwide visit. They lived for a time in the little French town of, of Saint Antonine. And Merton said, though he knew nothing about the, about the church or what people did in the church, he, he noticed that everywhere he walked in this village, he couldn't help but be confronted by the church that was in the middle of it, an old gray building, tall spire. And no matter what street he looked down, no matter where he turned, he saw that church. That church, he said, unified heaven and earth It seemed to say to me this is the meaning of all created things. We've been made for no other purpose than that men may use us in raising themselves to God and in proclaiming the glory of God. I did not even know who Christ was, that he was God. I thought churches were simply places where people got together and sang a few hymns, and yet now I tell you, you who are now where I once was, an unbeliever, I tell you, The church is a kind of sacrament, a place where He touches our conscience with a physical thing, with spiritual realities, and that alone, the Christ living in our midst, it is He alone who holds our world together and keeps us all from being poured headlong and immediately into the pit of our eternal destruction. How good is our God to come down and touch us, acknowledging caring for our physicality, and to do so beautifully. And now He's entrusted this mission station to us. I'm going to pray for us, then I'm going to give you time to meditate and fill out your pledge form if you haven't done that already, or do it by means of email, or you can do it. Once you leave, you can pick up a card there. But I want us to Pray and meditate for a short while, and then I'll close us with the benediction. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you spanned the gap between earth and heaven, put on flesh. And in the physicality and beauty of this place, which we have the freedom to come to every week, you have reminded us that you are not absent. But you are with us, and you will never leave us or forsake us. Help us to be good stewards of this place, that it might continue to serve this missional function of yours for generations to come, in Jesus' name.